Good morning, church. Today we are starting a brand new series. We are going to be working our way through Paul's second letter to Timothy. As this is a book study, I'm going to just do a simple expository sermon today. We'll work our way all the way through the first chapter. I believe there's no better sermon format than expository preaching because it is the, the format that really takes us closest to, to the meaning and application of a biblical text. So let's dive right in to Second Timothy. Paul is under house arrest for the second time in Rome, and he's writing to Timothy, who is in Asia Minor in Ephesus. The date is around about 60 AD, give or take a few years either side. And what's important to know about this letter is that it is most likely the last letter that we have that Paul wrote. It's a farewell letter. Paul is expecting to be executed, which is why in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, he writes this, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. He's not talking about getting out of jail or catching a flight. He's talking about being executed. The time has come for my departure. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. And now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. So, Second Timothy, this letter, it's really the words, the final words of Paul. And we're going to cover the whole chapter, as I've said, and it breaks nicely into five sections. Verses 1 to 4 is Paul's greeting, and it describes the nature of his relationship with Timothy. Verse 5 talks a little bit about how Timothy became a Christian. Verses 6 and 7 instruct us to fan into flame the gift of God. Verses 8 to 14 is Paul describing his calling. And then verses 15 to 18 are some personal comments. So let's dive right in. Paul's greeting and relationship with Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. Don't you find that greetings are an interesting thing? The, the situation and the people you're with determines the nature of the greeting. Sometimes it can be confusing knowing when to hug, when to kiss, when to wave, when to shake hands, when to fist pump, when to arm tap. Similarly, with written communication, there are also certain protocols. Have you noticed how when we write letters, we begin, dear, when we send an email, we just say, hi, and when we leave in a voice note, we say, hey. Different situations have different greetings. And so here in verse 1 and 2, this is a, a very typical first century greeting. 
It begins with the name of the person who's sending the letter and then moves on to describe who the recipient is. Do you notice how Paul's theology seeps into even his greeting? He doesn't just say, hey, it's Paul here. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Then he goes on to describe Timothy as, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is how people write whose faith is completely integrated into their life. His theology has bearing on how he conceives of his own identity. His theology shapes how he sees Timothy. I am an apostle of Jesus Christ, he writes. You're Timothy, my dear son in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace. Do you also notice Paul's rich understanding of the triune being of God? He says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is always very conscious of how we relate to the triune being of God, and it comes through in his writings. The theology around the triune nature of God is, is mind-blowing. It is mysterious. It is deep. It is profound. And I think the contemporary church has really oversimplified how we relate to God. Sometimes you'll hear people praying interchangeably to the Lord, to Jesus, to my Father. Paul's understanding of how we pray and how we relate to the Godhead is always much more nuanced than that. There is a richness in how Paul relates to the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We also see that Paul has a very close relationship with Timothy. In verse 2 he says, To Timothy, my dear son. The phrase dear son shows the affection that he has for Timothy. He's been mentoring Timothy. Paul feels fatherly towards Timothy. Another reason that we know these two had a very close relationship is that Paul says, I've been praying for you every day, actually twice a day. Verse 3, I thank God whom I serve, as my forefathers did, with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. He also speaks of a tearful parting the last time they were together. Verse 4, recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. That's how close these two men are. Perhaps there were extra tears at their last farewell because Timothy and Paul believed they might never see each other again. The message 
translation, I should say paraphrase, it's not a translation. The message paraphrase captures it like this. Every time I say your name in prayer, which is practically all the time, I thank God for you. I miss you a lot, especially when I remember that last tearful goodbye, and I look forward to a joy-packed reunion. Last week's sermon was all about making disciples, and What's going on here between Paul and Timothy is a great example of that. Paul has been building into Timothy's life for years, praying for him, encouraging him, teaching him, training him, mentoring him. I want to ask you, do you have this kind of relationship with persons in your life? Are there people who care deeply about you and your walk with the Lord, your ministry? I have people in my life like that, and they're a great blessing to me. Are there people in your network of relationships who committed to helping you grow and develop in your relationship with the Lord? Are there those individuals out there who pray for you day and night, who look forward to seeing you, being with you? These relationships are hard to come by, which is what makes them so special. How are you building those relationships? And we can turn this question around. Who are you being a Paul to? Who are you in intentionally spending time with, mentoring, discipling? Who are you praying for night and day? This is what discipleship looks like. It's, it's about a relationship between people. This was Paul's calling in life. In, one Colos in, sorry, in Colossians 1 and verse 28, he says this, we proclaim Him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all His energy, which so powerfully works in me. We want to see Everyone become perfected, complete in Christ. In Galatians 4.19, Paul puts it this way. He says, My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That's the goal of discipleship. That's the goal of ministry. To see Jesus Christ formed in people. This is what discipleship is all about. Let's move on now to verse 5. It deals in part with how Timothy became a Christian. And it's a great verse to be studying this Mother's Day. Listen to what Paul writes in verse 5. I've been reminded of your sincere faith which first lived in your grandmother, Lewis, and in your mother, Eunice, 
and I am persuaded now lives in you also. Here, Timothy's two maternal figures are being acknowledged for the role they've played in Timothy's faith journey. We know from Acts chapter 16 that Paul was from a mixed religious background. We read in Acts 16, he came to Derby and to Lystra where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jew and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. And we also know from verse 3 that before Paul took him on a missionary journey, he had him circumcised. And the, the verse says, because his father was a Greek, he was not Jewish. Timothy grew up in a home where his mother and grandmother were believers, but his father was not a Jew, not a believer. If he had have been, Timothy would have been circumcised. His dad was a Greek. And it is his mother's influence and his grandmother's influence that planted the seed of faith in Timothy. That's what Paul says here. I've been reminded of your sincere faith, which lived in your grandmother and lived in your mother, and now I see it's, it's living in you. He calls it a sincere faith. A sincere faith. It got me thinking, what, what is a sincere faith? Well, it's one that is deeply held. It's not a Sunday faith, you know, a faith that we bring out for church. It's not a, a faith that comes and goes depending on our environment. It's not a faith that is compartmentalized. This is my secular life, I keep God out of it. This is my spiritual life, God's involved. No, a sincere faith is, is one that is integrated. It is a faith that is deeply held. It is the faith of a person who's not double-minded, a Christian one minute and not the next. A sincere faith is one that is devout. This is the kind of faith that Timothy possesses. It's the kind of faith that he and I don't want to say inherited because we don't inherit salvation from our parents. But this is a faith that, that, was, that took root in him at a young age. What we see here, the faith being passed down from Lewis to Eunice to Timothy, this is an outworking of Psalm 145, which says, One generation will commend your works. To another, they will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. Are we that kind of generation passing on our, our faith? I think of Psalm 79, verse 13. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. These are verses that talk about parents declaring the, the goodness of the Lord to the next generation. What happened here with, with Grandma Louis, Lewis and, and Mother Eunice and, and grandson Timothy, 
This is Proverbs 22, verse 6, in action. This is train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not turn from it. Chapter 3 of this same letter sheds more light on how Timothy became a Christian and the way he was influenced by his grandmother and mother. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3. Continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. I want to highlight just four things from these verses about how Timothy became a Christian, about how he was exposed to the scriptures from his infancy. Number one, becoming a Christian is a process. It is a process. Verse 14 of chapter 3, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. There are three action words here. There's the learning, there's the becoming convinced, and then there's the continuing. And that happens with all of us. We first learn, then we become convinced, and then we need to continue. Secondly, in this verse, we see the importance of godly role models in young people's lives, in children's lives. He says, continue in what you've learned and become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. Much of the Christian life is caught, not taught. And we need godly people in our lives, and we need to be the kind of people that are shining the light of Christ so that it can be said of us, you know the person from whom you learned it, their witness, their life. We need to start thirdly at a young age with discipling people. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, Timothy, I know how you've learned it, how from infancy you have come to know the Holy Scriptures. When we read of something happening to a child in their infancy, that's a clue that someone else is involved Infants don't teach the Scriptures to themselves. Some parents have the idea that it is the church's job to turn their children into good Christians. But that's not how it works. The church and its ministries are here to support what you're doing as parents in the home in terms of leading your children to faith in Christ and into Christian maturity. As parents, we can't outsource the spiritual and moral development of our children. Developing character in our children 
developing their values and beliefs is fundamentally a parent's job and no one else's. At the end of the day, the buck stops with us as parents. And our job is to be praying for our children from before they're even born, to bless them and nurture them, to do for Timothy what Lewis and Eunice did. From infancy, Timothy, you've known the Holy Scriptures. What a blessing that is. Timothy's faith journey began when he was still in nappies. I can remember praying for my children from before they were even conceived. By the way, even John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit before he was born. We know that from Luke chapter 1, which ends with the phrase, in verse 15, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth. We also know that when John the Baptist, in his mother's womb, first encountered Mary carrying Jesus, that he sensed it in his spirit, and we're told that he leapt in her womb. Friends, the spiritual development of children can begin long before they're even born. And it goes well when as parents we have a love for and a confidence in the Holy Scriptures. Paul writes, You know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. If we want our children to know the Lord, to be born again, to have a relationship with God, will they better get to know the Holy Scriptures? Parents, I hope you are teaching your children by word and by your example the importance of the Holy Scriptures. I hope you're instilling in your children a reverence for God's Word, a love for God's Word, for it is their relationship and attitude to the Bible that will determine the nature of their relationship with God. It is so common today for the Bible to be disparaged, to be looked down upon, to be undermined, even in the church. But we read here how from infancy we need to teach our children about the Holy Scriptures and to teach them about the holiness of the Scriptures. The Bible is not just any old book or a book of people trying to make sense of their encounters with God. No, that's not what the Bible is, even though that's what progressive Christians say it is. It's a community of people trying to make sense of their relationship with God. No, Paul goes on to tell us what the Holy Scriptures are. He says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture 
is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Timothy became a follower of Jesus in part because of the diligence of his mother and grandmother in teaching him the Word of God and the ways of God. Verse 5, I've been reminded, Timothy, of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother, Lewis, and in your mother, Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. Let's move now to verse 6. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. The first question we need to ask here is, what is this gift? And why does this gift need to be fanned into flame? Paul also mentions a gift in chapter 4 of his previous letter. 1 Timothy 4, do not neglect your gift, which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. And then again in verse 14 of 2 Timothy chapter 1, what you've heard from me keep as the pattern of sound teaching. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. So what is this deposit, this gift that needs to be regularly fanned into flame. In all likelihood, he's referring to the Holy Spirit. It fits the context of verse 7. We also see from the verse in the previous letter that, that this gift was imparted through the laying on of hands. Paul mentions the elders praying for Timothy. He also mentions himself praying, possibly at the same time. And we know there are many examples from the book of Acts where the Holy Spirit was received by people when spirit-filled Christians laid hands on them and prayed for them. I don't believe it's a case of people receiving for the first time the Holy Spirit when people lay their hands on them, but rather the laying on of hands can cause a welling up of the water of life within us. An anointing can be released on a person when there is prayer. And perhaps this is the gift that Paul is referring to, but perhaps it's also referring to Timothy's calling, maybe his ordination, maybe when the elders prayed for him and set him aside, there was some kind of impartation, some kind of prophetic word given to be direction for Timothy. And Paul is saying, I, I want you to tre treasure this, to fan into flame this gift from God. 
this deposit that is within you. How do we fan into flame the gift of God? Well, I think it's through valuing what God has given us, through nurturing what God has given us, through growing in our calling, through developing and using the gifts that God has given to us. And we see the outcome of fanning into flame the gift of God. What is the result? Verse 7, Paul writes, God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. This is what happens to a person when they're filled with the Spirit. They become bold. They become confident. They have power. They are loving, and they are self-controlled. And then moving on in the fourth section of this passage, verses 8 to 12, Paul describes a little bit of his calling, and I'm more just going to read this than, than say too much about it. Verse 8, don't be ashamed to testify about our Lord. This can happen to all of us, can't it? We, we, we kind of don't want to talk about our faith in certain contexts. We feel we might offend people. We might say the wrong thing. People might not like us if we speak about the Lord. But Paul writes here, do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord. And don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel. Sometimes there is suffering involved in spreading the gospel, in standing for the gospel. Rather think about what God has done for us. Verse 9, think of the grace that was given us in Christ Jesus before even the beginning of time, but it's now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior. Then Paul says in verse 11, And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. I find it interesting how Paul describes his ministry. He describes it holistically. He says, of this gospel, verse 11, I was appointed a herald, someone who proclaims the gospel. He says, I was an appointed an apostle, Someone sent out, someone who goes from place to place spreading the Word of God. He says, I was appointed a teacher, a rabbi. I disciple people. I ground them in the faith. I help them to understand the Word of God and the ways of God. And Timothy, verse 13, what you've heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching. 
Teaching doesn't change with, with the winds of change. There is a pattern of sound teaching that we are to God. I think in this instance, in verse 13, it is this deposit of good teaching that, that Timothy is to God, verse 14. He's to guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit, because it's the Holy Spirit who illuminates God's Word, who leads us into the truth of God's Word. In verse 14, this deposit seems to refer to, to solid teaching. And then finally, this passage, chapter, chapter 1, ends with some personal comments Verses 15 to 18. It's funny to read some of these very personal comments. They remind us that these are real letters written in real context to specific people. The first group of people that Paul refers to are those that have deserted him. Verse 15. You know that everyone in the province of Asia, Asia Minor, has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. What a truly shocking statement. Everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including two people mentioned by name. Paul often faced the pain of believers deserting him, leaving him in the lurch. And he clearly feels they've only deserted him because they were people he knew and counted on. He mentions more deserters at the end of the letter. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 9, he says, Do your best to come to me, Timothy. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus has pushed off to Dalmatia. Verse 14, Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he's done. You too should be on your guard. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me, writes Paul. And then there were fortunately those that stood by Paul through thick and thin. Look at verse 16. He talks about Onesiphorus. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. So there were also those who stood by Paul. Paul writes, Onesiphorus, he refreshed me. He was the guy that brought me food and drink when I was in prison. He was not ashamed of me because of my chains. 
He's the guy that searched all over Rome to track me down. It's so important that we stand by one another in the body of Christ to be what Paul would call a loyal yoke fellow. Who can you think of right now that is in need of Christian care and support? Can you think of anyone right now who's, who's out in the cold, who needs a Christian like you to search for them and to seek them out, to help them, to refresh them, to encourage them? Well, we've reached the end of chapter 1. Let me just recap for us some of the key takeaways from today's message. Second Timothy is probably Paul's last written letter that we have. He's under arrest and he's facing certain death. And the letter opens with him describing the nature of his relationship with Timothy. It's a wonderful relationship. For years, Paul's been building into Timothy's life. He loves him like a son. Who are the people in your life that are helping you in your Christian walk? Who are those that encourage you, bless you, and most importantly, pray for you? And who are we doing that for ourselves? How can we initiate more of these relationships of spiritual mentoring, fathering, mothering, mothering? And then we saw how Timothy became a Christian, though he was from a mixed religious background. Paul writes, I've been reminded of your sincere faith that lived in your grandmother and in your mother, and I'm persuaded it's, it's living in you. And this impartation of life happened because from infancy you were, you were taught the Holy Scriptures. Here we see the importance of godly parenting. Even if it's just the one of you, it's all about being an example for our children, having confidence in God's Word, and teaching the Holy Scriptures to children from a young age. Then we saw how important it is to, to guard the, the gifts God's given us to guard the pattern of sound teaching, and to go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's fan into flame the gift of God within us. And finally, we learned about Paul's calling, how he was called to be a herald, a missionary, and a teacher. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this precious relationship that existed between Paul and Timothy. And we pray that you would help us to develop more and more of these mutually beneficial relationships where we help others in their walk with you and where others help us. Show us right now, Lord, who those individuals are that we should be reaching out to, either to, to, to mentor us 
or for us to mentor. And help us, Lord, to pray for one another, to seek out one another, to stand by one another. And thank you, Lord, for this wonderful example of faith being passed down through generations. We think of the Joshua generation in the book of Joshua. They knew the Lord, but they failed to, to pass on their faith to the next generation, and that generation became faithless. We know that the Christian church is only ever one generation away from extinction. And so we pray that you would help us to train up our children in the way they should go. We want to be generations that proclaim your, your faithfulness and your goodness to the generations that are coming after us. Lord, we want to build a strong church. And help us, Lord, to fan into flame the gift of God within us. And help every one of us to be heralds of the gospel. To take the gospel where it needs to go. And to be teachers of your truth. For we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.